This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hello, hell, do you read me? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Hello listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Enemy Within podcast. My name's Pete Romand, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, James Foley. James, how are you doing? I'm great, Pete. I'm looking forward to this. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And I'm especially excited because today we have a very special guest. Gemma Milne is with us to discuss AI, science, technology. Gemma is a researcher and writer. She's the author of Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, which is a fantastic book that I would thoroughly recommend that you read. She's written for numerous publications, including Forbes, Quartz, the BBC and The Guardian and much else. Gemma, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Thanks so much. I'm so happy to have been invited on after moving up to Scotland uh, from London about a year and a half ago. My big thing was like, how can I get in with all the cool Scottish media lots? So this is all part of the master plan. So uh, Wait a minute. you've obviously not heard about us properly then, Gemma. Like, maybe it's <laughs> the wrong podcast for you. Maybe my definition of cool is different than, than most people who knows. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to have to have a very broad definition if you're including us in it. But welcome back to Scotland. Thanks. No, it's awesome to be back. And it's a, yeah, no, I'm I'm good today. I've been happy with all this nice sun we've been having, except for the fact it rains most of today. Feels like it's spring at last. I mean, that sounds like Scotland. Lots of sun yeah. in quotation marks, as in actually <laughs> lots of rain. But a few moments of sunshine. So Gemma, how did you get into this field? How did you start writing about biotech and technology and all that sort of thing? By accident is maybe the short answer. The The longer answer is I've always been interested in science and tech and I just took a really strange and weird and wonderful route, as most of us do, to eventually becoming a writer. I, I, was a, I was a sort of big science advocate, shall we say, when I was a kid. I was one of those like total science nerds. And I suppose now I'm, I'm I don't want to say a science critic, but I, I research science and tech and write about it and talk about yeah. the sort of power structures within so the journey has been, I suppose, going from being like, wow, this is a thing that totally explains the world as incredible and is faultless to um, learning more and more about it and how it works and what the sort of political economy is around it through my various different jobs. And I've done all the evil industries from investment banking to advertising <laughs> along the way and learned about how all those work to then ending up being made redundant and thought, hey, I'll give this freelance and malarkey a go and end up uh, Googling how to become a freelance writer. And uh, and here we are. So yeah, it's it's been a, an interesting journey, but I think it's been fun and insightful kind of learning about business and media from the other side and then trying to analyze science from that perspective. That's a fascinating trajectory. And also, I imagine that having worked on the inside of many of these types of places, it gives you a really interesting insight from a critical perspective as well. Yeah, this is, you know, I remember listening to a podcast um, with, was it Rob Larson who was um, talking and he was saying about how he 
subscribes to like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times because the best way to understand the other teams, shall we say, is is to read their publications. And I think it's similar to working in industries. And it's not to say that I was, you know, when I was 18, I was like, I'm going to go work in investment banking so I can understand the bad guys. I genuinely wanted to go be a banker and thankfully have come out the other side. But I think understanding and learning how banking, finance, media, advertising, business, financing of business and business structures, like business plans, for instance. I do a lot, you know, do a lot of assessing of businesses even now for the government, thinking about, you know, what's a good business plan and how do you kind of structure things is a really interesting way of then analyzing science and technology because instead of thinking about, oh, what's been published in the latest journal or, you know, is this eventually going to be turned into a bomb? Obviously that stuff's um interesting and and important but without understanding you know how do we actually get from as they say lab to market and how do we govern these things what are the politics around it what's all like the weird culture what's the stories that are like inside baseball that is really interesting i love that yeah i suppose it would be useful for the benefit of uh, the listeners that might be less familiar to maybe go through the question of what is ai is the difference between robotics and ai simply something to do with the embodiment of AI into a sort of physical form as opposed to software? How do we define what artificial intelligence actually is? How you define what artificial intelligence is is a hotly contested topic if you want to go into the philosophy of it. But for simplicity's sake, I would say that the best way of thinking about AI is actually to use the phrase machine learning, because I think that cuts more to the heart of what it's about. It's literally about trying to get machines to learn. So you use various different techniques to take data sets, run some kind of algorithm on those data sets that allows the machine over time to learn how to analyze those data sets itself. So for instance, you might give a data set full of cat pictures, various different pictures of cats, and say to the machine, okay, here's a new picture that you've never seen is this a cat, yes or no? And it's whether or not the machine has learned through looking at all the other pictures of cats, whether this other one is a cat. That's obviously a very simplistic idea, but if you think about all the different forms of data, and when I say data, we just mean information. I think sometimes we use words that that make this sound more complicated than it is. All different kinds of information that exists in the world, and you think about how much of that is digitalized, in other words, is machine readable, And the way I kind of think about it is AI allows you to sort of see the unseen when it comes to information. Humans don't have the capacity to be able to analyze massive volumes of information, be able to find patterns in huge amounts of information, make predictions on huge amounts of information. But some forms of machine learning or AI can. In terms of the robots part, in terms of the embodiment, I mean, it's an interesting point about embodiment. I would say it's robotics doesn't really fully work well without using machine learning. Because if you think about it, without using machine learning, you're essentially using like a flow chart in order to um, tell the robot what to do. These kind of flow charts, you know, you got in like magazines to work out whether or not like a boy fancied you or something and you would follow the flow chart. That's like what's called decision trees. That's quite a gender reference. Like a- Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, you, you could use that in very like early forms of analysis, robotics and stuff would have used decision trees and would have used 
essentially like, you know, really great Excel spreadsheets. Whereas when you add in the ability to do machine learning, you can set a robot onto an area of space and say, if you come across a radiator, first of all, work out whether or not it's a radiator. And if you think it is, turn round because you don't want to run into the radiator if, for instance, you're a robot hoover, right? You can't program a decision tree for every single thing that possibly is in every single person's living room, but you can try and teach a robot hoover what not to run into. This is a really long-winded way of saying that robots and AI and Internet of Things and all these kind of words, they all center around data slash information and how you analyze and utilize and make decisions off of information. That's really what AI is about. And you can't really have a conversation about AI without talking about data and who controls data, who funds data, who analyzes data, and who creates algorithms to, to understand and utilize that data through AI. So is there anything particularly novel about the latest iterations of AI that we've seen? I mean, things like ChatGPT have really caught the popular imagination. And for the last couple of years, we've seen digital manipulation of pictures and art and so on using AI. Is there something new and distinctive about these types of technology that's distinct from machine learning processes that have been around for quite some time now? Yes and no is the short answer. Yes, they are innovative and new in the sense that they're able to, frankly, do the things that they can do. I mean, if you look at some kind of early forms of machine learning, you wouldn't get very nice looking pictures. They wouldn't, you know, look at that Pope picture with the Balenciaga, you know. I love um, it. So good. Classic. Absolutely classic. But, you know, it it almost looks real. There's a few, it is, when you zoom in, there's a few kind of issues with it. But, you know, you look at it immediately and you think, whoa, that looks real. A couple of years ago, if you'd said to some machine learning generative AI project, could you get me a picture of the Pope in a Balenciaga jacket? It, it wouldn't look like that. So there is there is a difference. And a lot of that has to do with the amount of data that has been harvested and analyzed, the depth of science and engineering that's being used in order to create algorithms, but also process all this data. So you think about all the data centers, the computing power, the, the, the man power, the brain power, the woman power <laughs> um, that's being used to move these things forward. That's really where there is a difference. Where there's not a difference or where it's not necessarily innovative is when you look at what's claimed to be being done, or at least what people think is being done in the main, which is this is a artificially intelligent being that understands what I'm asking it and has given me an answer in the same way a human would. No, that's not actually what's happening here. It's mimicking, it's guessing. You know, with ChatGPT, I saw a guy tweeted the answer that his daughter, who's a scientist or something, had mentioned. I thought it was a really nice way of describing it, which is basically it is giving an answer to your question that it thinks would sound like a good answer to mm -hmm. that question, yeah. not the answer to the question. And accuracy is not a thing when you're trying to make something sound like something. That's sort of what I mean about it. It's both innovative and new and impressive in a sort of technological, scientific sense, arguably, but it doesn't stack up to huge claims that are being made. You know, I sort of worry about the level of excitement. I think AI is kind of, has these peaks, you'll have heard about AI winters and so on and so forth. And I think AI was starting to be seen as not quite so cool 
and the tech critics were louder in, in the sense of being able to say like there's a lot of hype around AI and be careful and then chat GPT comes out and it's like wow isn't this so cool and exciting and look what I tried and that's worrying for me because the minute you start making this thing seem cool and fashionable people care about that stuff do you know what I mean that's really interesting I did hear someone make an argument recently that a lot of the people that got really invested into cryptocurrency, since the kind of collapse of crypto, a lot of them are moving into the AI space and are suddenly <laughs> hyping up AI as the big future thing. Yeah, yeah, it's the same as metaverse. You get all these people that were like, oh, let's make a metaverse startup accelerator. And then it's like, oh, no one's really talking about that anymore. I know, let's make it a generative AI startup accelerator. And it's the same. I've seen crypto startup accelerators turn into AI startup accelerators. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And there's also been an uptick in terms of like the number of newsletters that are focused on generative AI. And there, there's being specific saying generative AI because that's the new thing as opposed to AI more generally because that has been around for a very, very long time. It's almost like what's the latest trend in AI? Is it deep learning? That was like five years ago, maybe. Then there was like neural networks. And now it's generative AI or general intelligence. I mean, general intelligence has always been around. So I think it's more about going what's the latest buzzword with respect to AI more generally. And, and yeah, it's quite easy to see those switches in terms of the, the thought leaders and the, the entrepreneurs, which makes sense because there's hype there and hype makes money at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. as, as I explore my book, you know, it's, it's, this is the thing that I think people kind of get caught up with, with hype. There are people out there that literally only care about making money off hype. That is what a VC is there for. They want a return within four years. So they don't care whether or not a company is actually legit or valuable by a sort of societal metric, shall we say. They care about whether or not it's going to sell in four years' time to a larger entity, i.e. it's going to be seen as valuable, i.e. hypey. So, you know, I, I think we've got to remember that people trade on hype at the end of the day and these trends work for that. <laughs> it's an absolutely fascinating insight that it does raise a lot of questions about the nature of contemporary business and capitalism. I mean, you said you'd worked on the inside, which is brilliant to hear because actually I always think the left doesn't have enough insights into the way that business and capitalism actually works nowadays. To what extent do you think, therefore, the way that investment now works? is entirely driven by this logic of hype. And how does that actually work in reality? I mean, I remember talking to people who told me that, for instance, with the metaverse and similar things like that, also crypto, a lot of this was just big oil money that was sloshing around the system with nowhere to go. And people were essentially specialists in using hype to find outlets for this sort of stuff. And bamboozling gullible investors into going down all these different routes. I mean, is there a certain element of that that's going on? Is it just an absence of profitable outlets and people are just trying to make money off hype, as you say? I mean, f investment is a huge sector. It really depends on which bit you're talking about. I mean, VC is a very particular kind of investment versus, say, pension funds or, or whatever. I mean, I think that Hype definitely plays a role, not just in terms of people trading on it itself in order to make money, but it allows for different kind of incentives 
to sort of flow through the system. So an, an example would be, say, for instance, like impact investing is quite a hypey term, right? Or green investing. Like these sorts of things are hypey, not just because they sort of jump upon technology trends and I guess cultural trends and whatnot, but it sort of aligns with what you know investors are wanting or at least wanting to say that they want, shall we say. Hype plays various different kinds of roles across finance. And when it comes to thinking about VC money in particular, That is about creating a portfolio that gives kickback to your your LPs, to the people who invest in your fund as a VC, right? So you've got the, the investors that give money to the VCs and then the VCs give money to the companies. And what you've got to remember, this is the bit that I think is missed a lot of time when you're talking about VCs and its relationship with startups. They're seen as... The, the sort of top of the pyramid. They're the ones with the money and they, they, they give it to everybody else. But actually, no, they've got to satisfy their LPs. So VCs have got to say to their investors, look, we are worth investing in as a fund for X many reasons. Yes, we give um, results, but we are also innovative. We are at the cutting edge. We are investing in the latest technologies. And it, in some sense, doesn't really matter whether those fail they have to be able to show that they're able to know what's going on so that they can report back to their LPs that, okay, yeah, this crypto startup or this metaverse startup or whatever didn't really work, but at least we were at the cutting edge when it when it happened. And, you know, we are going to continue being at the cutting edge because we've got our finger on a pulse. So there's there's that kind of this is what I mean about incentive structures. Like you've got to you've got to kind of think about, I mean, people are just people. And you've got to think about who's trying to satisfy who and for what reason. And so hype is really about capturing attention and about getting people, utilizing people's emotions. Could you explain some of the terms you're using a little bit? So what is a VC? Oh, uh, sorry. What is VC and LP? No, not at all. So VC is venture capital um, or venture capitalist, if you're talking about the person. It's capital being provided for ventures, i.e. businesses, small businesses, entrepreneurship, basically. And the reason we hear a lot about VCs when we're talking about technology and science is because a lot of the time we're talking about startups, or at least these are the things that make the news. And VCs tend to be the ones that provide funding for startups at various different stages. Venture capitalists, the people, really love to be thought leaders as well. If you want a bit of a laugh, I would recommend following a few of them on Twitter. There's also there's like a, a, a Twitter account called like VCs congratulating themselves and it's um it's really great. But anyway, so so VCs get a lot of coverage, shall we say, because they help fund startups, but they also talk a lot about what's next in terms of startups because their job is to keep the finger on the pulse in terms of new things that are coming out, fund it early, take a cut, take equity, and then after a couple of years, what they normally want to happen is to get a big payout. So they'll want the startup to either flow on the stock market, which means they they end up selling their share for a large amount of money, they make a huge amount of profit, or maybe the company is bought by a bigger company. So maybe like, I don't know, Facebook slash Meta comes in and buys your startup company, the VCs will make a lot of money off that. So that's what VC is. And the LP is limited partner, which is the people who invest in the VC funds. So these are various different kinds of investors, whether it's institutional investors or pension funds or really wealthy individuals or whoever. 
that are wanting to make investments and they'll put their money in many, many different places, but they might put a portion of their money into particular venture capital funds because they want to get the kickback from that profit that VCs make off of uh, startups. And one of the big things to know with VCs is, and investing in general, is that it's all about portfolio, right? So you only really need one company to do really, really well and 10 can do pretty badly if that one company can kind of pay for the bad results of the rest. So when you look at the investments in VC, it's not always about VCs betting that every single company they're investing in is going to do really, really well. It's also about what does their portfolio look like in terms of attracting LPs. So that's kind of the point I was making earlier about, you know, wanting to invest in things to show that they've got their finger in the pulse, but not necessarily thinking they're going to get a huge kickback in a short period of time. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. AI's been a dominant theme in Hollywood for many years, especially in science fiction. From 2001 A Space Odyssey to movies like Blade Runner, The Terminator and The Matrix, and even as far back as Metropolis, which I think came out in the late 1920s, the dystopian implications of AI have excited the popular imagination. And in some ways, reality is catching up a little bit. Uh, And I say this because at the end of last year, for example, it was announced that the San Francisco Board of Supervisors had proposed legislation that would let the police department used armed robots. They could even be equipped with explosives to, quote, contact, incapacitate, or disorient a violent or dangerous suspect. So in one of the most dystopian places on earth, apparently, local government watched Robocop and decided to base their policing strategy on it. Uh, Now, there is some debate on whether that's actually going to go through, but I thought that was an interesting little development. And then in the totally opposite direction, I watched the latest episode of the Star Wars show Mandalorian a couple of days ago. James is going to hate this. He hates it when I bring up sci-fi to talk about politics. But anyway, the storyline of the episode was about the Mandalorian going to a planet where no one has to work because they reprogrammed all the Empire's droids to do all the work and they don't have any defenses because they basically defunded the police. So basically you have a Hollywood depiction of some kind of automated luxury space communism. So these two juxtaposed parallel stories uh, are an interesting insight into both the dystopian and utopian implications of AI. And so I wanted to ask you about the way in which AI is depicted in popular culture, in the popular imagination. Are these two extremes, uh, do they have much to tell us? What do you think? Oh, so much to say on this. First of all, I think the just to briefly pick up on your sci-fi politics thing i love using sci-fi to talk about politics in fact i'm actually i've got an ally yeah no i'm i'm currently researching a piece on bureaucracy and how it's used in sci-fi um tv shows and books and so on and so forth and how bringing to light the the intricacies of bureaucracy through sci-fi helps us critique it 
But anyway, yeah, lots to say. I think, I mean, there's that standard quotation, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. And I think sometimes when you take these two extremes and try and analyze them either together or individually, you've always got to remember that it's not all good or all bad. It's always about what's the power structure within. So even if you do have a, a planet that's reprogrammed all the joys, I haven't seen the latest episode of Mandalorian, I'm afraid. Um, I'm more of Star Trek and Star Wars kind of gal. Sorry if I give any spoilers. <laughs> Sorry for anyone listening. Um, but yeah, you know, who's utopia is that and whose dystopia is that and i think it's important with these kind of stories to try and utilize them through asking those kind of questions i do think that there's a, a lot that can be learned but in terms of how ai is depicted in popular culture i mean in the, the chapter in my book on ai is i utilize the main um headline shall we say that you tend to hear about ai which is ai is going to steal our jobs you've also got ai is going to kill us all or, or ai is going to end humanity but ai is going to steal our jobs is perhaps the more quote-unquote realistic version that you tend to hear and the argument i make in that chapter and i think is true for these more extreme versions whether it's utopia or dystopia is the idea that what that narrative actually really does at the heart of it and what most narratives about ai do at the heart is the other ai so they make it an it they say it's a a thing that we don't necessarily have control over that is not human that is separate to us and I think that that's quite a dangerous way of thinking about AI because what it does is it removes any sense of agency or responsibility from the discussion. So instead of, for instance, of saying AI is going to steal our jobs, perhaps a more realistic but less catchy headline would be corporate CEOs are making active decisions to replace human labor with machines in the name of profit. And of course- Absolutely. Not quite as catchy, but it does get to the heart of agency, responsibility, and and power. Whereas if you say AI is going to steal our jobs, it's othering in the same sense that you say the immigrants are stealing our jobs. You know, it's this like there's some alien quote unquote thing coming in. It's not any human's fault, and we don't have any say over this. And, and this kind of deterministic narrative as well of you know this is going to happen and we just have to get ourselves ready takes away this idea that we can do something about it like we can push back against things which has happened with various different things in ai over the years i mean a good example would be facial recognition it wasn't that long ago where everybody was like that's definitely going to be a thing and we're not going to be able to fight back against it we might as well just get ready for it and there's been many, many, normally from below organizing that's fought back against facial recognition as a technology and its usage, particularly in kind of cities and policing and so on and so forth. So in terms of how it's depicted, this othering, this it's definitely happening, this either utopia, dystopia is what you tend to see, but it's crucial that we kind of try and get to the heart of what we really mean when we're saying these things. Pete, just to be clear, right, on the topic, I, I quite like, you know, using science fiction analogies, right, just to be clear on this. What I don't like is the simplistic narratives of goodies and baddies that you get from Harry Potter, The Hobbit, and all these sorts of things creeping into the way that people discuss politics. I mean, wasn't it ridiculous a couple of weeks ago where we had NATO putting out a tweet that was comparing what was going on with Russia and Ukraine and so on, a very adult and often horrific war that is going on. They were talking about it in terms of Avatar, The Hobbit, even William Wallace for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they don't know much about the reality of uh, William Wallace. And also that isn't sci-fi. But anyway, like it's that type <laughs> of um, 
infantile use of science fiction analogies. But it should be said that one of the most profound things that people often quote about our contemporary politics, uh, which is Frederick Jameson's thing, of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, was itself, I think, written in relation to science fiction and the impact of science fiction on our collective imagination and what it says about our collective imagination. So I think very often science fiction actually is useful in thinking about what's gone wrong politically, whether or not we can project onto that goodies and baddies. I just think we live in such a post-heroic age of politics that those types of narratives are completely useless. We're more in a sort of children of men type you know, uh, situation rather than anything else. And it's very hard to even conceive of what heroism looks like sometimes anymore in politics. I was just going to say something quickly on this imagination point, because some of my research at the moment is around how certain areas of science and tech are thought of as really, really imaginative. For instance, the space industry. But I'm kind of arguing in my research that there's actually a lack of imagination, particularly with respect to politics and organizational structures and things like that. And I think this is something where also this kind of Luddite versus progress imaginary shall we say also comes into importance where again we have this idea that oh people who are in tech or in startups or in ai or whatever are these super imaginative optimistic progress forward-thinking people um, and those who are tech critics are really negative and pessimistic and so on and so forth and i always say well actually it's a lack of imagination to not consider that there's an alternative beyond tech to make the world better so i think that's another kind of shall we say, popular idea that really I think needs challenge, particularly with respect to AI, that if we keep saying the people who are pro-AI are, are the optimists, they think it, you know, the world can be better and you guys are all just the naysayers. It's like, no, if you think that only AI can do what you're claiming it can do, you're, you've lost hope in the ability for human systems, political systems, community systems, and less, shall we say, privately owned, centrally controlled technological systems to solve problems. So, you know, I, I think that's not just about sci-fi. I mean, I think general points about collective imagination, as you say, Frederick Jameson, is super important when we're talking about science and tech, and it doesn't come into the conversation quite enough how much imagination needs to be changed and poked at and critiqued uh, with these dominant narratives. You look at the top end of Silicon Valley, there's kind of two big discourses that are going on about this at the minute. On the one hand, you've got the kind of tech optimists like uh, Sergey Brin of Google who are talking about the emerging singularity where we're going to have AI consciousness very soon and it's going to provide all these bountiful benefits for humanity. We'll be having a universal basic income. We'll barely be doing anything all day. And there's that kind of like solutionist element to that sort of thing that's going on. Conversely, you've had Elon Musk, who uh, simultaneously is talking about full automation of his Tesla factories, but at the same time is saying that this is the biggest emergent threat to humanity. The kind of shared premise of both of those is that we are on the brink of some massive emergent breakthrough when it comes to artificial intelligence and that we haven't really noticed how quickly this is coming up and that it's about to transform everything. But I guess you're kind of coming at it from a more pessimistic perspective than either of those in that your book seems to quite firmly assert the fact that there is still a great deal of human input necessary for artificial intelligence to actually do anything. 
Do you think that's something that's going to continue, though? Or is there a point at which it starts to imitate consciousness so well that this is no longer necessary? The short answer is I don't know. And nobody does. <laughs> um, I think that there is a valid conversation to be had about these things, both philosophically and more through a realistic lens. Where I kind of keep coming back to, though, is you know, there's a reality to who controls AI development. And, okay, if you've got an AI that has consciousness, it's still going to need data centers to process what it's doing. So, like, who owns those data centers? Who runs them? Who makes money off them? Who pays for them if we're living in a capitalist society still at that point? Blah, blah, blah. There's, like, a material reality to how AI works. And so... When you start thinking about like AI consciousness, it's like, okay, well, maybe we'll have a level of consciousness in terms of what's coming out the other end when you type something in. But like, who's paying for the processing behind it? It's the perfect thing with ChatGPT. It has such huge repercussions on climate every time you ask a question because of the data processing that has to be done in order for an answer to be popped up on the screen. And so... Yeah, what's the mechanics of that? What's the politics of it? Which country does that exist in? Whose laws are being used to determine, I don't know, the price of energy in that space? What temperature, what climate does that data center exist in? Data centers have to be very cold in order to to process efficiently, for instance. That's just one element to think of. There's still going to be a level of control or power from some kind of human group or individual. And that's what I think is worth focusing on and concentrating on when it comes to critique. Um, Report that came out today by the AI Now Institute, which are an amazing research institute that's really worth following along if you're interested in kind of particularly critique of AI and look in an institute that's only and fully focused on looking at power structures with respect to AI. They put out their like state of industry 2023 and their big focus is on saying, If we're going to talk about AI, we have to talk about big tech. We have to talk about competition. We have to talk about antitrust. We have to talk about privacy policy. And we have to focus on the fact that it's realistically five big companies that have a monopoly on all of AI. ChatGPT can't just be created out of nowhere. ChatGPT appears almost magical at first. You just open a browser on your computer. You ask it a question. And within a few seconds, it starts coming back with this often incredibly coherent response, which is really quite amazing. And one of the things you've talked about a lot is all of the processes that are going on behind the scenes to make that a reality. So, for example, I feel like OpenAI has got some good branding. OpenAI is the company behind ChatGPT and a few other AI technologies. But the people behind OpenAI include investors like Peter Thiel, and not that long ago, Microsoft invested $10 billion in open AI. And it probably was not the case that the heads of Microsoft were sitting in a room and thinking, how do we take humanity to the next level? No, they were thinking, how are we going to make some money out of this? And you've talked a lot about the climate implications of this. It's interesting that OpenAI started with the aim of being quite open about what it was doing. But since Microsoft's investment, they've gone from open to closed. So now we don't have any information on sources, on methods, on power consumption, or anything like that. And in reality, 
while it looks like this magical process that doesn't take any particular work, you know, you've actually got uh, like a supercomputer that Microsoft has built to power this. I think it's the Voyager ESE2. And effectively, you have factories somewhere spewing out smoke in order to keep this running. But I'm interested in where this is going because I read recently a couple of commentators suggesting that Microsoft are really going to start trying to monetize this soon. And one of the ways in which they're going to do this is by integrating OpenAI into their business software packages and into their ProPilot systems. And effectively, this is going to be something that startups and existing businesses, it's an expensive package that you can buy and manipulate with your own data and integrate it into your own company's apps or whatever. And this is the way that this is going to start being monetized. If you think about Microsoft, this is clearly something that they've wanted to do for a long time. I mean, I remember way back as far as Clippy, which was supposed to be some sort of, you know, artificially intelligent helper on your desktop. For younger listeners, don't ask about Clippy. But I think this opens up some interesting questions about the future of AI. Who is going to be able to use AI? How is it going to be monetized? And are there any ways to reclaim this, if you like? For example, are there ways for social movements to utilize this technology? Or is it going to be developed so purely with the business community in mind that that's a limited possibility. I mean, in politics, for example, I can imagine the next presidential election, there'll be some sort of debate about how some sort of messaging has been developed by AI or something. So I can imagine it moving into the political realm at some point. What, what do you see as the direction of this based on the fact that there are actually individual actors sitting in chairs making decisions about mm. how this is developed and where this goes? Mm. That, is a, that is the question, isn't it? That's uh, That's a whole... How, how, how many more hours do we have? No, um, I think that, okay, there's a few things here that we haven't touched on that maybe will be interesting to bring up with respect to this big picture question around the future of AI. One of the things I think we don't talk about quite enough is the idea that utilizing AI for things ultimately kind of makes them cheap. And what I mean by that is if you think about, for instance, healthcare, the idea of like um, AI doctors, automated doctors, this could be spoken about in this really high tech, awesome way. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just talk to a chatbot that would understand you and be able to diagnose whatever it is that you have? The reality is, is that people that can't afford <laughs> to speak to a human doctor will get a chatbot. And so the AI solution the kind of automated solution ends up being the cheaper, lesser than kind of rubbishy one that you don't want. And I think that it's the same with, yeah, you're talking about political campaigns. Oh, this has been written by an AI. I think we're going to start being able to kind of see what's being done by an AI and what's not, even though, yes, you look at a picture and you first are fooled, but it doesn't take long for people to zoom in and start noticing the problems. We're going to have ways of being able to check provenance. We already do. And so I think that where you might have a level of initially, there's a lot of demand to be able to utilize AI to do things to almost not let people know that it's AI, if that makes sense the demand for it will ultimately start to go down because people will know it's done by an AI in the same way that's like, I don't want a crappy 
chatbot, AI doctor, I just want to speak to a person. This is what the people building these chatbots say. They say they never will replace the human because the human touch is more important. It's like, well, if that's the case, if it really never will, I don't believe you're going to be able to convince people that they're going to want something that's not the real thing. And I think it's the same across many different sectors. Yes, there's going to be a lot of replacement of kind of jobby sort of stuff. <laughs> I don't mean uh, the Scottish jobby. I mean like uh, job related, sorry. My dad will love that reference. Um, Not in the Billy Connolly sense. I know, exactly, exactly. Um, what I mean by that is, yes, it makes complete sense for Microsoft because you can start automating people doing spreadsheets, for example, right? Stuff that arguably it doesn't quote-unquote matter. People don't care if it's been done by a computer or not because it's not necessarily about quality. But then the problem is, is if everything's kind of being done with lesser quality and being automated, where does the demand for it come? I don't think we're quite we're seeing that kind of conversation more in the artistic realm with respect to like AI being used for art. We're seeing it with medicine. People are starting to finally say AI is cheap medicine, not high quality, better medicine. And I'm curious whether that same sort of narrative will become a bit more mainstream around utilization of AI for everything else and thus reduce demand. So it's maybe a little bit rogue that point and I'm not sure how economically <laughs> um, how much uh, backing I have for that point but it's just a kind of hunch around this sure. idea that you know if it's not trendy and it's not in demand who's going to use it I mean you know if you think back to like a year or two ago when we were first seeing these kind of generative AI pictures you know you could create like a profile picture that'd be made by AI they all kind of look the same. They all, you, you know, they've got kind of vibe about them and they're not cool anymore. They're like really uncool. You know, when you see someone with kind of this like AI generated profile picture, you're kind of like, is that ironic? I don't know. Are you talking about Pat Kane? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the point I'm making, the point I'm making though is, is right? You see what I mean though? It, it becomes yeah. culture. This is my, this is my point. It's, it's cult, culture is like such a big part of this, right? Yeah. And it makes sense for people like Microsoft are creating B2B systems and whatnot to try and like, you know, automate things in that space. But when it, the bigger stuff, the kind of more public stuff, the consumery stuff, I don't know, like, I think people's um, desires change a little bit too quickly. Yeah. That's just my hunch anyway. I'm cutting that a bit out. I don't want to get cancelled by Pat Kane. I'm o I'm okay. I mean, Pat Kane can cancel me if he wants. Like, I know Pat quite well. He's allowed I, I don't care if he tries to cancel me. Oh, I feel bad. I've criticized his poor pro I wasn't actually thinking specifically of him, but you are right. You are correct. <laughs> what, what what it does, I mean, basically what you're kind of saying here is very quickly it becomes boomer. Yeah. Right? And once it becomes boomer, nobody wants it anymore. Yeah. I mean, God, look at Facebook. I mean, look at the metaverse, the very idea of the metaverse. That's not cool anymore. Now I think it's, I mean, God, look at Elon Musk and things he tweets, man. He is so uncool and everybody knows it. And I just, I think that there's that element, that kind of tech becoming a bit uncool in some sense. I think it's worth a bit more analysis and a bit more thought when you start considering how are people going to accept or not accept AI-fueled services in the future. I think it's fascinating that Elon Musk has been so uncool on Twitter that it hit Tesla's sales and their profitability. Yeah, so they I had know. to lower the price of their cars because Elon Musk was being such an idiot. 
Yeah, but then you also have to, this is the thing, you have to be careful with these sorts of things because at the same time, it changed the logo to the, I never know, is it Doge or Doge? Anyway, dog logo thing. And uh, the price went up. You know, he, he, there's power, you know, you can be uncool, but there's power. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, we need to look a little bit more into the cultural dynamics of how people consider tech advancements and how quickly things change in terms of what is deemed cool or desirable with respect to when it, how it's been created. I know we've gone over time, uh, and so I apologize for keeping you so long. Uh, I just want to ask James if you had any last things you want to say, any last, a last question you want to ask. Is there anything we've missed? Well, I, it's, I mean, it's one of these kind of classic annoying leftist ones that's more like a contribution on the question, you know what I mean? But I wonder what your thoughts are on this. I guess like it's an interesting one from us when we're thinking about the history of capitalism because basically people have been predicting that automation will lead to technological obsolescence of the working class basically since capitalism came about. It's been at the heart of a lot of science fiction imagination as we've talked about, but people have actually made these predictions and say if things keep going on as they are currently going on, the working part of the population will be obsolescent you know, within a couple of decades. And you can find these predictions back in the 1920s. You can find John Maynard Keynes uh, saying that, you know, by the turn of the 1980s or something like that, we'll all be working about three hours a week. And so you get the optimism, you get the pessimism, et cetera, et cetera. But none of it's really turned out to be true. In fact, like for all the predictions, we've actually lived through one of the lowest rates of unemployment in human history quite recently. Not human history, but in the history of capitalism, even as the economy is not being doing very well. Part of the reason for that is that human labor power has been so cheapened by the neoliberal era of the last 40, 50 years, they have actually had very limited incentives for companies to pursue automation and artificial intelligence and so on and so forth, because you can just get a low-paid you know, human monkey to go and do the job for you rather than having to move towards that type of investment. Do you think that there are these types of economic barriers left to the development of AI, which will also impede the further development of this type of automation? Or do you think that this time it's going to be different from all the previous times and that we're actually going to see some fundamental revolution that will transform? Well, I mean, I, I guess we've already been transformed by the post-pandemic period in the sense that we're all working from home and so on. And we shouldn't underestimate that type of thing and its impact too. But is the world of work really going to go through another fundamental transformation imminently because of AI and automation, do you think? I think that there will be huge transformations, yes, in terms of lived experience of individuals in the main. But unless power structures change, that point isn't going to change. You're still going to have folk taking advantage of other folk. <laughs> Um, you're still going to have people being able to become billionaires or gazillionaires or whatever the next one is because they're able to control the means of production, whatever that is in future. You know, I mean, I, I think there was a lot of optimism around the pandemic. You know, one of the good things about the pandemic is we've all realized how important key workers are and now we're all flexible. It's like, no, that's not what's happened. We've all forgotten how important key workers are. And companies are trying to drag people back into the office and firing people that won't go in and work. And this idea that we're all working from home, yeah, the, the office class are, 
but lots of people my dad's a stonemason he's not working from home <laughs> you know so and i, I think yeah. it's like there are huge shifts that will happen yes things will change you know moving from a fax machine to email was a big change and has changed the nature of work being able to use zoom instead of doing business travel flights has changed the nature of how b2b sales work for instance like lots of things have had these big shifts because of technology changes and that will continue to happen but i don't think there'll be emancipation without changes in ownership without changes in the concept of private property without changes in how individuals value themselves and their time and their and their kind of place in the world Gemma, I think that is a fantastic place to leave it here today. Woo! Thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fantastic. No worries. This is fun. You have increased the interestingness and uh, <laughs> intelligence of this podcast no end. So you're going to have to come back and chat to us again sometime. Sure. Anytime. Anytime. This is fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, this is great. Honestly, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this and I've Not learned all. loads. Not and at all. I feel like um, in every sort of podcast discussion or news report on AI, it's become almost ubiquitous to say, oh, and by the way, ChatGPT wrote everything that I just said. Oh, no. What are you? What are you? How are you ending this? Well, I was just going to say that ChatGPT didn't write any of this. Oh, right. Okay, good. No. <laughs> you know, our entire conversation was actually scripted by ChatGPT. No. Uh, no questions were uh, created using ChatGPT, and no, uh, no industrial pollutants have been uh, although, launched as a result of our. <laughs> although, if we had done some polluting, the quality of the questions may have been better. So, Perhaps, you know, maybe, maybe next maybe. time I'll, I'll go back to that. Pros and cons depends on what you value, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much. Thanks, Gemma. Awesome. Thanks for having me. What you just heard me reading wasn't written by me. It was written by artificial intelligence, ChatGPT. ChatGPT wrote everything I just said. That was news copy. I asked ChatGPT to write. Remember what I said earlier? But ChatGPT as Well, I asked ChatGPT to write that line for me. Users who are on Then I asked for a knock-knock joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? ChatGPT. ChatGPT who? ChatGPT, careful. You might not know how it works. 